0: Section Fourteen of the Age of Elizabeth by Mandel Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book Three, Chapter Five. Saint Bartholomew's Day, fifteen seventy-two. Coligny had cast over Charles the Ninth the spell of his powerful mind, and the king inclined more and more to his view of the war with Spain and the Netherlands but the queen mother was alarmed at Coligny's power. If he were to succeed, her influence over the king would be gone forever. She made common cause with the Catholic party, resolved that at any cost Coligny's plans should fail. She joined with the widow of the murdered Francis, Duke of Guise, and the two women plotted Coligny's assassination. A gentleman attached to the house of Guise, Montrever, shot at Coligny on August twenty-second, as he was slowly entering his house engaged in reading a letter. The shot was fired from the window of a house opposite. It wounded Coligny in the arm, but the wounds were not dangerous. It was clear that an inquiry would be made into the attempt at assassination. Catherine was not a woman to shrink from carrying out a scheme she had undertaken. Coligny must be got rid of, and the king must be rescued once for all from his influence. His wounds gave him greater hold upon the king's sympathies. The Huguenots gathered round him, demanding vengeance. They were prepared to go in a body to the king and denounce the Duke of Guise as the assassin. They muttered threats of what they would do if they failed to obtain redress. Men's passions had grown fiercer the populace of Paris prepared themselves to defend the Guises against an attack of the Huguenots. The Huguenots stood sullenly opposed to the excited populace amongst whom they lived. Coligny had striven for the reconciliation of the two parties. Of this, the marriage of Henry, the young king of Navarre, with Margaret of Valois, the French king's sister, August eighteenth, had been regarded as the pledge. The Prince of Navarre, after his father's death, had become the titular head of the Huguenot party. His marriage with Margaret was to bring the two parties together, and the Huguenots had streamed into Paris to be present at the festival and make a demonstration of their power. The people of Paris had received them with silent threats. They themselves were fanatically Catholic, and saw with hatred Coligny enter the city and take his place at the royal council by the side of Henry of Anjou and Henry of Guise. The attempted assassination of Coligny awoke all the deepest passions of both parties. Catholics and Protestants alike began to gather apprehensively round their chiefs. In this excited state of popular feeling, Catherine and the Guises saw their safety, the king was perplexed at finding that his mother was privy to the attempt on Coligny's life. She repeated to him exaggerations of the wild words and threats uttered by the Huguenots. She showed him their armed bands in the streets and asked if a royal army could be raised to meet them. She warned him that soon the royal power would pass entirely into the hands of Coligny. She stirred up the king's feeble mind to alarm— and then suggested to him the way out of the difficulty. All the chiefs of the Huguenots were in Paris, caught as in a net. It only needed a word from the king to arm the people of Paris against them and rid himself of his enemies at one stroke. The scheme was not premeditated, nor had the Huguenot been deliberately invited to the capital to be massacred. Perhaps old plans of a general massacre for the suppression of Protestantism which had been suggested in former times by Philip II, recurred to Catherine's mind. But the plan in itself arose to her Italian brain as a possible means of extricating herself from her present difficulties. To rid himself of his enemies at one blow was a device sometimes adopted with success by an Italian tyrant in his small state. Catherine believed it possible in France. At first, Charles IX shrunk with horror from the proposal. Catherine reasoned in its favour as an act of policy, appealed to Charles' affection by declaring that her life was no longer safe in Paris, and at last taunted the feeble youth with want of courage. Charles was stung by his mother's taunt. He gave his assent to the plan, and when once his assent had been given, he hurried on with feverish excitement. Early in the morning of St. Bartholomew's Day, Sunday, August twenty-fourth, the massacre began. It was known in after days by the bitter name of the Paris Matins. The Duke of Guise himself superintended the murder of Coligny. The corpse was thrown out of the window into the courtyard where Guise stood. All the Huguenot chiefs, except only the two princes, Navarre and Condé, were put to death. On every side the bells rang, and the populace in the king's name, Stormed and robbed the houses of the Huguenots and murdered their masters, who were entirely taken by surprise. It was a night of horror. Private revenge and personal hatred ran riot under the protection of the royal authority. Religious fanaticism sheltered itself under the name of patriotism. A terrible fury had seized the people. For years they had been disturbed and disquieted by Huguenot rebellion. It needed but a few sharp hours of determined action, and these disturbers of their peace would be got rid of forever. The fury spread quickly from town to town. the royal orders were everywhere acted upon, and for days the massacre went on. It is difficult to estimate the number of victims; the calculations vary between twenty-five thousand and one hundred thousand in the whole of the kingdom in the excitement of the act. Its terrible significance was not regarded by those concerned. The king rejoiced that at last he had acted decidedly and become a king indeed. Catherine thought that she had freed herself from her enemies and had wrought a good deed for her country at the same time. The Catholic powers exulted over this victory of Catholicism. Gregory Thirteenth, who had but lately become pope, ordered a Te Deum to be sung in honor of the event— and went in solemn procession to be present at the thanksgiving. Philip forgot his usual severity of manner and laughed for joy. No doubt the atrocity of the deed was not known at first. It was believed that a plot of the Huguenots had been discovered, that their designs had been anticipated, and that they had met with the punishment that was their due. In England only was the moral bearing of the massacre at once perceived— A shudder went through the land at the thought that a king should arm one part of his people against another. The French ambassador was long refused an audience of the queen, and when at last he was admitted, he was received in solemn silence by the queen and court, who were all dressed in mourning. In the Netherlands, the events which we have been relating produced the most disastrous results. The patriots saw themselves cut off from all hope of French help. Orange, who was advancing to the relief of Mons, was driven back into Holland, and Mons was compelled to surrender. The rebellion was crushed in the southern provinces, and the Spanish troops, by their atrocities, exacted a terrible revenge. Alva sent orders that every town which refused to admit a garrison should be besieged, and all its inhabitants be put to death. At Mechlin, Zutphen, and Narden, these orders were almost literally carried out. Alba was consistent in his policy of crushing rebellion by the example of terrible severity. But the men of Holland and Zeeland were not to be crushed without making an effort, and a struggle was now begun which has made the name of Holland memorable. It was a struggle conducted on both sides with desperate bravery and determined daring. Marvels of force and cruelty attract our attention as much as marvels of patriotism and self-devotion, the Spanish soldiers were unequaled in Europe. They were devoted to their leader and zealous for the Catholic cause. They fought with as much desperation and fury as did the burghers whose only hope of life lay in their courage. The struggle which now began is marked by matchless deeds of valor on both sides. An attempt on the part of the patriots to obtain possession of the town of Hus in South Bevelant led to a wonderful exploit on the part of the Spaniards. South Beveland is an island lying off the mouth of the Scheldt. It had once formed part of the mainland, but the sea in a heavy storm had dashed away the dykes, and now ran in a channel ten miles broad at its narrowest point, between South Beveland and the shore of which it had once formed part. Hus was invested by the Patriots, and the Spaniards were cut off by the fleet of Zeelanders from sending reinforcements. Determined not to lose the town, they formed the bold undertaking of wading along a narrow causeway on the drowned land, as it was called. The water on this narrow causeway was four feet deep at low tide and rose with the tide ten feet. It was a terrible hazard for the band of three thousand men who undertook this journey of ten miles by night with the water reaching up to their shoulders. A few false steps, and they would be lost. If they failed to accomplish their task in six hours, the rising tide would sweep them away. Yet such was the disciplined precision of the Spanish soldiers, that of the three thousand, only nine were lost on the way. The rest reached Bévalant in safety, and Hus was saved. The siege of Harlem is again famous for the desperate courage of the patriots. When summoned to admit a Spanish garrison, the men of Harlem determined to resist. Their fortifications were weak. Their garrison was only 4,000 men, while Don Frederick de Toledo led against them 30,000 veterans. Yet, for seven months they kept the Spaniards at bay and only yielded at last to famine. Three hundred women armed themselves and fought in regular corps. Assaults upon the city were repelled by the determination of the citizens, who poured boiling oil and blazing pitch on their assailants. Women and children worked day and night to repair the breaches in the walls. When it was found hopeless to take the city by assault, the Spaniards tried to undermine the walls. The citizens made countermines, and sometimes the opposing parties would meet underground and engage in savage contest. But the valor of the men of Harlem could not hold out against famine. On July 12, 1573, the city surrendered. Its garrison was butchered, and the city was left a heap of ruins. Alkmar was next attacked, but the patriots resolved that the dykes should be broken down and the country round be swallowed up by the waters of the sea, rather than that Alkmar should fall into the enemy's hands. The Spaniards, discovering this resolution, retired in dismay. They had come to fight against men, not against the ocean. Thus, at the end of 1573, it was clear that Alva's severity, so far from having broken the spirit of the Netherlanders, had only stirred them up to the most stubborn resistance. For seven years, Alva had tried his utmost. He was weary of his task, and Philip was convinced of the failure of his measures. He was consequently allowed to return to Spain, where soon after, on a slight pretext, he and his son were imprisoned. Nor was Alva restored to favour till his military talents were required for an expedition against Portugal. In the Netherlands, a more pacific policy was adopted by Alva's successor, Don Luis de Requesens, who was governor for the next three years, from 1573 to 6. In France, the result of the massacre of St. Bartholomew's had not been quite so decisive as the fanatics who had engaged in it had hoped. The moral horror of the deed dawned upon the minds of its actors. Charles IX was haunted in his dreams by the terrible remembrance of that night. He sprung from his bed in terror, and to the excited minds of those around him the air seemed to be filled with groans and shrieks. Even in the camp men thought they saw the dice thrown by Henry of Guise stain the table with a mark of blood. Moreover, the general policy of France had been contradicted by this massacre, and when men's feelings settled down, it was seen to have been a mistake. Spain was the leader of the Catholic world, and France could not hope to dispute that leadership with Spain. By the massacre, France had lost her moderating position between the two parties. All dealings with the Netherlanders were broken off, the negotiations for the marriage of Elizabeth with the Duke of Anjou were stopped, the Huguenots still held out against the royal troops in their cities of Rochelle, Nîmes, and Sancerre. It was in vain that these cities were besieged. They defended themselves with desperate heroism. Though many of the Huguenots had been massacred, and many had changed their religion through terror, still there remained too many to be put down by force. Moreover, the Poles were thinking of the election of the Duke of Anjou to their throne, but if Anjou were to become king of Poland, he must declare himself willing to mediate between the two religious parties and to allow religious freedom. For all these reasons, the old policy of pacification again won the upper hand in France. In July 1573, free exercise of religion was granted to the towns of Rochelle, Mont-Aubin, Nîmes and Sancerre. The Huguenots obtained peace for a while, and the discords at court soon strengthened their hands. The youngest brother of the king, the Duke of Alençon, openly opposed his mother. In the dissensions and quarrels that followed, a new party gradually gained ground. It was composed of men who, for political reasons, wished to maintain the edicts of toleration and so, to allow the fury of religious passions to settle for a while in this distracted state of things, Charles the died in may fifteen seventy four His brother hastened to leave his Polish kingdom, from which he fled secretly, as he was afraid the Poles might put hindrances in his way, and succeeded in France as Henry the Third. The next few years are free from any decisive events in Europe generally. The first outburst of the great commotions which marked the reign of Elizabeth had subsided. Things had begun somewhat to find their level. At first, all was doubtful and uncertain. The chief actors had to watch eagerly for indications which way fortune was likely to turn. It had seemed that the chances were greatly against Protestantism and Elizabeth. Elizabeth had never ventured to ally herself definitely with the Protestant cause— she had no rational hope that the Netherlands would give Philip so much trouble, or the Huguenots so long make head in France. Year by year, Elizabeth's throne grew stronger. The failure of the rising in the north and then of the Ridolfi plot showed that she was firm upon her seat. England had been growing more united, more decided, more adventurous. A bold and eager national spirit had been growing up amongst the people. From the year 1572 to 1576, the country was quiet and secure. When again England came forward, it was no longer uncertain of its position or its destiny, but was prepared for a struggle with Spain, which should determine the future of both countries and should decide the fate of Protestantism in Europe. End of Section 14.